Welcome to the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. The rise of AI presents important legal and ethical challenges for society. In this podcast, we invite leaders from different industries and creators of new AI to debate the big questions. This is the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. My conversation today is with Evan Stelcher. Evan is the author of the best-selling book called Innovation Tools, and we're going to base our conversation today on this book. Um, he's also the head of analytics for Biari, and he has a PhD in game theory. I hope you find this conversation useful, especially if you're thinking about innovation and considering what the best tools might be to help you to do that. Hi, Evan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you so much for taking the time. So I really wanted to have you on the show. Uh, you, you've written a very good book on innovation, and it really gives a practical you know, some practical tools uh, that people can think about when trying to innovate. So I think a good way, probably a good place to start is um, by having you to discuss your experience and the drive um, to write this book. Um, and yeah, the idea of the podcast, I guess, is to um, share with people ways in which they can innovate and and probably bringing your own experience. Absolutely. Look, I think the book was a bit of a passion, a labor of love to, to actually complete it and finish the entire thing, in particular from where I was coming from. When I was starting out, I guess, with my own startups, my own ideas around how do I take innovative ideas and launch them to the world, I was at the point where I'd read all the major books. I'd read all the lean startup. I'd looked at all other approaches to taking risky startup ideas to market. And what always struck me was that people really enjoyed writing books and writing things about these high-level concepts. And what was always missing for me was what to then do in real life. And I feel that's a big problem. I feel that's a, a concern I have with a lot of the large strategic books around startups and innovation and entrepreneurship and that. Everyone loves to discuss these amorphous kind of terms that, in each specific situation looks totally different and what they leave out of the edge cases and the details around, oh, what do I do in that specific situation? Because that's actually the linchpin of the whole process when it comes to running a startup or doing something innovative. And what drove me to write this book was to fill that gap. So I felt that what was missing was really a focus on what are the specific tools, what are examples of those tools And how do I follow through on using them to be successful when innovating, in particular in the startup space? But also there is a chapter or two that does help focus for larger corporations within this book in particular when I discuss open innovation. But it was really that dissatisfaction with the high-level discussions that exist in too many books and wanting to fill that gap with specific content that people could then use and refer to when they're facing challenges of their own to then be able to cope and deal with those challenges. Yeah. Um, 
because um and i think a lot of people can share this um you know in theory it, it's much easier to understand something theory than in practice right exactly. and when you're trying to incorporate these principles into practice it's very challenging you can read the link start up many times right yeah. Yeah. that's it it's always the little edge um, cases that catch you out it's always the gotchas and the unknown unknowns that really turn something that felt like a good idea on paper or or in particular, if you've got a technological idea and you think, oh, I'm going to revolutionize medicine, but, you know, you've got no background in medicine, then all those little gotchas and little unknown things that, that you're unaware of, they're the things that will bring you down. It won't be your take and it won't necessarily be the, the high-level idea that books like that appeal to and that discuss in, in kind of a high-level way. Yeah. Um, so... One of the things that I found interesting when I was going through your book is um, you mentioned there are a few different statistics about, you know, where we can expect to in the future and how companies are responding to this. And, and generally statistics about, you know, how many companies were really going to be able to innovate effectively and how many, you know, are going to actually be out of business if they cannot do this right. Um, so... Do you want to uh, share maybe a little bit about what you have seen? And, you know, one example that I can think of now is um, when we think of in Australia, um, as an example, one in five companies are to become enlisted in 10 yeah. years. So that's pretty alarming. Absolutely. They, I, think, I think what's interesting about those statistics is the way that they broadly apply not just to a single startup, a single entity that's trying to get off the ground, but also the way they apply to larger corporations. So there's this scaling effect between it. I mean, the cliches and the statistics around entrepreneurs and the failure rates are well understood. I think they've been discussed many, many times. I think what happens, but is when we actually think, okay, let's not be an entrepreneur and let's look at how corporations do it. I think the expectation is that they failed. And the reality is it's true, around 7% of all innovators successfully commercialize their innovation, inventions, whether in commercial or in a startup setting, and only 4% of innovation initiatives achieve their internally defined success criteria within organizations. I mean, it's, it's pretty damning. I guess the challenge is within an organization, if you think you're going to be innovative in that setting, I would claim that it's even harder than it is to have your own startup external to such an organization, and in particular, even if we look at something as basic as R&D, which doesn't necessarily mean it's innovation in new products, it could be improving existing products and then trying to extend product lines, only about 12% of that even return their capital costs. So it just goes to show the challenges that exist in this space for, for being able to innovatively launch new products and ideas, not just for the solo startup founder, but also within companies and in particular the discrepancy between the two showing it's actually even harder within organizations than it is for founders. And that kind of explains the reason why, well, once a company's technology becomes a sunset technology and they've run their life and they're now being disrupted, the probability that they're going to be able to pivot and successfully turn around on that and then deliver a new product in line with new technologies and the new the new paradigms is extremely low. But the more more often than not, the organisation will fail, which leads to this churn that we see on things like the standard pause indexes and that. Mm. And do you think this failure is is due to 
just a lack of understanding of what the best tools are or they're just lacking support. And are you seeing this in, are we talking about large corporations as, as much as the smaller ones? I think it's across, um, across the board. These statistics hmm. exist. And I think the larger the organization gets, if they don't follow good processes to manage this, to manage this innovation agenda, then the more likely they are to fail than a smaller organization. I think it's quite in general. I think with the book and, and what I'm trying to address here, I'm only addressing one piece of the puzzle. So by reading my book, you'll, you'll get some understanding as to when I go to carry out my innovation agenda, when I want to solve the problem that I've found. So my book doesn't address things like design-led innovation and design thinking and stuff like that where you will be at that point of understanding the problem and ideating and then narrowing down the ideas that you've created, that kind of double diamond approach to things. My book will tap into the second part mm. where you're beginning to prototype. And how do we create those prototypes that we can then put in a way and create in a way that will allow us to, to actually realise the invention and even some of the ideas that they will allow you to ideate well as well, so two of the chapters on crowdsourcing innovation and open innovation do tap into that ideation part of the piece. But I think it's really, even if it does tap, tap into that ideation piece, it's really like what specifically exists to make that successful? What specific elements that uh, are usable and are well tested and well understood? Because as part of this book as well, one thing I thought I'd mention is there was a lot of research I did around the existing Tools. And there were a lot of cutting-edge tools when I wrote this book, which was about three or four years ago, that probably at that point in time I wouldn't have recommended because they weren't well understood. But when I wrote the book, there were a large number of techniques mm. that were cutting-edge, were well understood and had been used and were that I could recommend to a reader without having them take a significant risk in using that specific tool. Yeah. So let's let's jump and talk a little bit more about these tools. So for people listening and thinking about, you know, how do I assess what tools would work for me and, you know, um, going deaf about what you're talking in the book, what would you say? So while I was writing the book, I created actually a small diagram that I'm happy to share with you, Kelly, that you'll be able to share with the listeners. There's a single-page PDF that allowed a person to assess the challenge that they're facing and then correctly select the tool that would be most appropriate to that situation. But I guess at a broad level, what we're looking at here is really the types of scenarios where you can leverage other people's expertise to solve problems or in, in the corporate sense, the open innovation sense, to gather ideas to solve problems and then be part of that problem-solving process. Then also that prototyping phase, looking at hackerspaces, makerspaces, and things like that. So basically each of the chapters within the book, they look to address different aspects of that innovation process that I feel and had seen in my experience were things that people commonly come up against. So within the early chapters, what I really try and do is address that early phase of creating an innovative idea and then finding solutions for the type of problem that you're facing and how to create those kind of basic iterations on what the problem is that you're looking at. So in the early phase, I, I discuss things like the crowdsourcing and the crowdfunding. And in particular, I try and go into some of the details to show some of the gotchas in there and, and things that will catch people out. And in particular, what that culminates in, in further in, in Chapter 4 is really looking at 
open innovation and how these ideas can be applied at a larger scale within an organization. Chapter three, between those two chapters, really looks at that prototyping phase, building those early designs and, and a bit of the ins and outs and telling some, giving some case studies and telling some stories around other people that have done it and how they kind of did it and where they do it. By the time you get to chapter five, you've kind of covered those basics and you're probably at the point where you need to understand how do I even pick which of these projects now that I've prototyped and now that I've now that I've understood better and seen the opportunity, how do I pick the one that could be, have the best opportunity of success? And that was where I delved into the topic of behavioural innovation. Now, behavioural innovation for me was a fascinating topic because as far as I understand, before I published this book, this was the first time this topic appeared in a book. There were white papers and articles, but I really wanted to make it mainstream by writing this chapter on it and helping people understand what are the biases inherent in our innovation decision-making tapping into knowledge and, and understanding from other areas like behavioural economics and shining light on the type of things that lead us to make less than optimal decisions in the behavioural innovation space. After that, I tackled a chapter where I felt this was something that almost anyone in the high-tech startup space would face at some point in time. And if you're a founder that has a problem and you're not you've got a technology and you're looking for a problem, but you've got a problem and you're looking for a solution, then this is something that happens quite commonly in the high-tech space, and it's you need the latest knowledge within a specific area. So Chapter 6 really delves into that access to the knowledge and understanding the knowledge and figuring out what type of knowledge exists and how do I get my hands on it cheaply and effectively because that's the name of the game so that I can then solve the problem that I have. Chapter 7 then jumps into looking at a trend that was big back when I was writing the book, and that was the as-a-service principle, this idea of providing things in bite-sized packages as you need in elastic, scalable format. And what I was looking at there was not a trend that was well understood in the cloud and the infrastructure and platform or software as a service. It was looking at how it was now having an effect on other industries, like medicine as a service or manufacturing as a service and the expansion that we were seeing there and how you could look at that perspective and see how can I use that for my business. And we can talk about later on how I use those ideas also in a previous launching of an innovative idea that we had in a business I worked in back in Sweden. And then finally, the final chapter looks at what's the point? What's the point of doing this? What's the point of low-risk innovation? Where can it take us? What benefits do we expect to see after implementing it and carrying out the ideas that we that you're able to read in the book and and looking at the different perspectives that I present. And I kind of really get that bigger picture that wraps things together and finds that common thread between the chapters and shows you why that it's important to take a low-risk approach to innovation. Yeah. I don't think it's even an option, is it? According to, you know, this like the statistics that we were just discussing before, it's not an option anymore for companies as to whether do I want to innovate or not, right? If you want to remain relevant, um, I think it's essential that they start thinking about this. Absolutely. And even for the small startups, how do we continue that innovative trend that, that we've begun? And and I think this is this is not even yet yeah, a question of is my idea going to be successful or not? It's rightly like you said, it's can my business even survive in the current environment? So it's not even talking about a product market fit. We're just talking about, well, if we want to survive till tomorrow, this is a key characteristic and attribute. And how do we manage that one a lot better? Yeah, yeah. 
So very interesting um, what you're discussing about the psychological side of innovation. Um, and how, how do we, and this is something that I think every founder, as you mentioned, would go through at some point. How do we, how do we overcome that? I think that's a really, really good question. I, I think it's one of the major challenges facing people because I feel that people are somehow aware, they've read somewhere the challenges that we face as human beings psychologically and making good decisions, but then actually implementing that in real life is, is a significant challenge. And there's been a lot of studies reviewing how do we take and address these biases, assuming that they're negative, not all of them are, there are a variety of different perspectives, and I discuss it in my book, ones around simple heuristics that's, that people like Gerd Gigerenza are proposing and are proponents of to say that, hey, look, not all these biases are bad. But when we do say that, hey, look, this bias here has a negative effect on my performance and decision-making, the big question is, well, then what do we do about it? And there's been a number of studies that really point out that if you simply make people aware of them, so that when that decision is being made, they're, they're made aware of the fact that this bias could be influencing the decision, can help them make a better decision. And something that I think every single startup founder faces, every single one, is one of the ones I discuss around the sunk cost fallacy. It's really the idea of after having invested a lot of effort into something, we value it more than if we hadn't put that effort in and someone else had. And I think this is a challenge that we face to sometimes drop bad ideas how do we say, look, no, we've got to cut it off and stop doing this because it's really not going to prosper irrespective of the effort I've put in? And within the chapters in the book, I give specific concrete tips around how to do that and how to address those things because I don't think they're, they're really simple, simple challenges that we can, that we can, we can solve very quickly. And I think even some of the examples that I give are around having other people, third parties, review the decisions and, and third parties being able to give us the feedback that we need from an independent perspective as well as a variety of other suggestions that I make in there, for example, in spreading your bets uh, so that we don't get ourselves stuck in, in certain self-delusional behaviours and some specific concrete strategies that I give in there that are known to help. I think that's with armed with that, we'll be able to make better decisions. Mm. And how to make that assessment before you put so much effort into it, right? Exactly. And then even knowing that, you know, as I'm making this assessment, what are the kind of things that I should just be aware of to make sure that that's a good decision? And, and none of this needs to be complicated. I mean, a lot of this really should be in processes that exist nowadays that you should be doing this. Like one of the things I talk about overcoming certain biases, the need of data. I mean, really, that's a basic sort of thing. If you're making decisions without data, then uh, it doesn't matter almost is whether the bias is there or not. You're probably going to be making a suboptimal decision and then looking at third parties and spreading your bets and stuff like that. I think a lot of these really should just be basic part of core decision-making processes anyway and fleshing that out and showing what type of problems they solved I found was quite useful. Mm-hmm. One thing that I, I seem to read across uh, many different books, you know, advising founders or when talking about startups, um, is the advice around surrounding yourself with other people when sharing your ideas, right? So 
there, there, there's this rule, for example, that you, you know, you think you have a really amazing idea, right? Maybe before you start working on that, share with 10 people and get a sense of, you know, do they share the same feeling that you do, right? Before you put so much effort into it. It's, a, it's called the, the 10 people test or something like that. Um, and it goes back to um, maybe surround yourself with mentors or, you know, they're, they're, I suppose there are different ways of doing it, right? Absolutely. And one of the interesting things that I find in that type of situation is it depends who you're talking to as to how receptive they'll be. I think one of the funny jokes that you'll see around a lot of the startup scene is, is a joke around the person's first idea. And the person's first idea is usually what they believe is the best idea ever. They want to protect NDAs. They want to not tell everyone. They want to make sure everyone's agreeing on the confidentiality that they won't dare share the secret. And it's kind of funny. When you get through that three or four times and you realise actually that first idea I had was crap. It was really bad. And I'm actually really glad that I didn't act overly protective of it and actually share the idea with others who weren't going to take it anyway and B, didn't have the time or the capacity or skill set to do it anyway. That was why I had the idea because it fits my background. So it's, it's quite interesting that I think one of the challenges for a first-time entrepreneur is, is recognising that, hey, you need help and, and that, you know, the idea that you've got may change the world, but more likely than not, it won't. So getting that bit of extra help and feedback is, is going to be massively beneficial. Yeah, yeah. And what, what is the statistic again for how many how many entrepreneurs fail at the first time, right? It's it's massive. It depends on where and what the technology is, but it's it's literally huge. It's it's gonna be, you know, in the in the night it depends and it depends on the time period as well, if it's over one year, three years and that. It's well over ninety percent most of the time, especially if you're looking two or three years out. And and again, what I think is quite interesting about this the startup scene is the way the word startup gets used nowadays. It seems to be that almost any company is a startup, even if you're just a small business and a fish and chip shop, you have to call yourself a startup. <laughs> yeah, <Whereas> yeah. <laughs> the initial intention of the word wasn't small business, but something that can scale and grow globally and, and achieve something on a much larger scale quickly and is often powered by technology rather than a, a small fish and chip shop, which admittedly can scale to be something very big. But typically, just the intention of creating one fish and chip shop and stopping there isn't the uh, isn't I think what the uh, the word startup is appealing to. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so going back to, I guess um, you know you have many years have over the experience you have founded and co-founded many companies. Um, can you share with us how you personally apply some of these thoughts and principles during your work life, the mistakes? you might have made and you wish you know you if you maybe if you had the, the if you had the book before you would have avoided oh absolutely i think one of the biggest mistakes i always made in the beginning was the solution looking for the problem and although the book doesn't necessarily address that directly that sort of an interesting anecdote was a lot of the startups that i got involved in often were around a really elegant solution or elegant idea at least what i thought was and running out and trying to apply that to a variety of different situations, looking for the problem to solve. And then when finding a problem to solve, often failing because I didn't have the domain knowledge in the area. And so I didn't know all the little gotchas that would, that would cause me to, to fail. But one of the interesting applications of this for myself was robotics as a service. So back when I was working in a previous company, 
we had a tool that helped plan robotic stations and 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 a lot of the robotic activities that occur in large manufacturing lines. And we had the idea of providing that we wanted we wanted we wanted to take that tool and apply it and give access to it to much smaller manufacturers, much smaller companies than your big auto manufacturers or or large scale household wares manufacturers. We wanted to give it access to the smaller guys lower down in the supply chain. And so the thought was, well, how do we take this expensive monolithic tool and make it more accessible for for smaller companies so that they can afford its usage? Because we, under the pricing schema, the, the sim, sim, single desktop application was the idea that you'd use it a lot and you get a lot of benefit out of it. But what happens if you only need to use it once a month? And that was where we kind of came up with that idea of offering this software as a solution almost and trying to tie that into the use of robotics as a part of that. And, and being able to take that desktop application and apply that and give people access to it in the cloud so they just pay for what they need and they pay as they go and can scale up and down as needed and we'd take care of the rest. So that was one of the applications that, that I, or one of the learnings I took from the book and tried to apply there. And given that I'd spent a lot of time in manufacturing, I was also looking at 3D printing in one of the ventures I was involved in and, and offering that as a service. Although that is nowadays, since writing the book, it is something that's commonly offered as a service. And this was in particular in, in sort of medical device manufacturing. Mm. So when you started, that was something quite new, wasn't it? Yes. And back then, four years ago, it was, it was quite new on the market. Nowadays, I would say it's, it's relatively commonplace. And what's the, what's the one piece of technology that you're excited about? But one of the areas, pieces of technology that I'm really keen to see a lot more of is, is the next phase after AI and after machine learning. So the company I work for, we do a lot of advanced analytics. And I guess what we're always trying to do is, is trying to help companies go beyond machine learning and beyond AI and stuff like that and really helping them make good decisions. So a lot of the hyper trends that, that we're seeing nowadays around the AI space really revolves around simply predicting things and classifying things. It's not necessarily simple, but that tends to be the focus. And the challenge that I see in industry that, that when we try and bring these tools to bear and, and the fruits to bear on our clients is really they ask us, so what? Now what? What do I do now that I've really gotten that prediction and I now am able to predict something? I now need to make a decision. And one of the exciting trends, and it's it's not necessarily something that's new, it's been around for well over 100 years, 200 years, is really the idea of optimizing things to make better decisions. And I really feel that it will be the next big thing that will move in and, and do and take AI's place and machine learning's place. And even going beyond that as we're seeing things like GANs and stuff entering the space of two technologies, two ideas operating against each other, trying to play each other out, which introduces things like game theory into the mix and finding Nash equilibrium, which is even more so than optimization, which tries says, hey, here's the optimal decision. Now this thing is making the decision. And that's really where I see a lot of the exciting technologies going forward is that kind of not just so going machine learning to here's what the best decision should be, to then trusting the, the system to make those decisions. And we see that in autonomous vehicles. But I guess where I'm excited about that is, is outside of those typical applications of 
of, of image processing and then autonomous vehicles and seeing that spill over into much, much other broader areas where we need to make constant, continuous decisions every day of our life. I see. So you're referring to basically where we can apply these solutions that we no longer need to actually operate them. They're basically making decisions for us. To a certain extent. I think we need to be careful around that. I think there are ethical and, and moral challenges that we'll face when doing this type of thing because as soon as the system becomes autonomous like that and is able to make its own decisions, it's fine when it's creating a new image like we do with GANs or when it's creating new video that you can then look at and 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 then choose to whether you whether you release it to the world or not, whether anyone else sees that. But when it's used to make decisions that then have flaw and consequences immediately to a wide variety of people, I think that's where we need to think hard about their appropriateness. But I really feel that if we're able to answer those ethical and moral questions around that, that this ability of things to make quick decisions and, and us to then take a back step sometimes on this will be really exciting beyond the, the typical headline industries. Mm, yes, I agree. So in relation to these ethical um, issues that we're facing, um, how do you think we should, we should look at these issues? And what, what would you say it would be you know, a, p a perfect scenario where, you know, how we should be deploying the solutions, creating in the first place or considering what the impact is? It's a very challenging one. There's that balancing act between innovative, being innovative and stifling innovation. So not allowing innovations to grow by creating too much red tape around the ideas versus weighing up what the benefits are. It's one also for which I don't think there's a single simple answer apart from the fact that when we look at things like deep fakes and, and new technologies, new, new things that came out like the deep nudes, which was a thing you could use on Skype to undress the other person you were talking to on the other side, I think really we should be able to apply existing laws and existing social norms to decide whether that should be allowed or not. I mean, Are you allowed just to walk up to someone on the street and undress them? No, you're not. There would be a law which you would violate. I think similar things should apply in the digital world, those types of scenarios. Now, you'd have to be careful saying that because there might be edge cases where just applying that broad stroke is inappropriate. But I feel that an example of that could be medicine. You might use a digital tool to undress someone before a medical procedure instead of having to undress them for certain reasons. And perhaps it should be allowed in that scenario. But in other scenarios where you're just having a normal phone conversation, you don't give your consent for that to happen. And I think reflecting on the existing set of laws and what exists in society and applying that in the digital world and not just uh, thinking that, oh, because it's digital, it's different. I think that that could be applied a lot to answer a lot of the questions we're facing now. But It's something that's very deep and a lot of extremely intelligent people have weighed in on and still there isn't agreement on the best way to approach these things. However, I think not addressing them quickly enough could be a problem because if you don't address them quickly, then one of two things will happen. One is that these technologies will go so far on their own they'll cause a major disaster and there'll be, a whip, there'll be some significant backlash from society and it'll basically, instead of, 
simply being moderated, there'll be a knee-jerk reaction, it'll be black or white, no, we can't do this ever again. And the other way we don't address it quickly ourselves, other people will decide for us as to how it works and we won't be a part of that debate on key technologies and key things that will help define our future either for the better or worse. Exactly, yes. I couldn't agree more. I think I think the fine line is how not to stop innovation, you know, how to continue encouraging innovation, but also thinking about these issues. Um, and that's where we are right now. So, yeah, it's a big debate. <laughs> Agreed. And I don't, I don't think it's anything we'll have a quick answer for, but I think there should be guiding principles, irrespective of, of the details and specific scenarios. I think we need to have a set of guiding principles, and I'm not 100% sure if they're there yet. No, yeah. Um, I've, seen, I've seen Singapore taking steps uh, in practice trying to address this problem, so we have some guidelines that came in in January this year, um, ethical you know, the ethical guidelines for building AI in particular. Um, I probably see it's one of the one of the only countries taking steps um, to address this um, at the moment. Um, we um, and I think you can probably speak for Australia. I don't think that we're we're there quite yet in Australia, are we? No, I think there's, it's, it's part of a lot of the open debates. I'm going to be at a number of events this year on AI and machine learning. And in fact, almost all of them now have an ethics string. And I think it's good. I think getting that discussion out there and, and, and having a frame discussion, I think leaving a discussion open to anyone just to opine on and, and, and say what they think is not a good idea. But I think carefully framing the discussion around specific points and guiding it and saying, look, Here's what we want to address. Here's what our thoughts are. And getting some people in the room who have done this before in other scenarios. And, again, it's all about those unknown unknowns are able to say, hey, look, here's what we've seen and here's what we need to think about. I think that will benefit the progress that we make in the space. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Right, Evan. Well, thank you so much for your time here. Um, for people trying to contact you, what's the best way? Look, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. I think that's a great approach. So if, if you reach out to me on LinkedIn, be more than happy to connect or even you can send me a message on Twitter I'm at eShellshare or even uh, send me an email at evan at biari.com and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Or And also, Kelly, I'll share that PDF with you to help people make decisions on how to use the different tools in the book so you can share it with all the listeners. Excellent. Yeah, we'll have that available in our page. And also, we are going to have a couple of your books available for listeners. So if you're listening to this and you would like to grab a copy, um, leave us comments on, on our page. I'll give, a few, I'll give a couple of opportunities on social media as well. Um, and we'll get the copy for you. Um, hopefully, it's um, helpful as much as it's this conversation has been absolutely thank you Evan again and um, yeah hopefully we'll talk again soon absolutely thank you so much for having me on today it was a pleasure